0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you
1: did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
0: So I've missed you guys. You know, I was gone for a week because I was taking my son to college. He's a freshman, and so... You know, in a way, I was just joining the Hunger Games of grabbing every power strip and duvet cover at Target for his dorm room before all the other parents could beat me to it. I mean, it's vicious out there, you guys. September, of course, is what the really big college month, right? Where kids head to university, if they can afford it, armed with hopes and dreams of reaching great heights. Like what kind of heights? I don't know. Being the CEO of a world-renowned casual clothing company, my guest today has reached that height. But what makes him so special is that he was the very first in his family to go to college, and thanks to supportive parents and a much-needed needs-based scholarship that arrived just in the nick of time, Jerome Griffith is now the CEO of apparel giant Land's End. I can't wait to hear your story, Jerome. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz.
1: Thanks, Liz. Appreciate it.
0: Of course. I mean, wait, okay, so the very first in your family to go to college. Tell me about your family and your ancestors.
1: Um, we can go back to the 1800s. Please. Uh, and I know that my my grandfather was actually illegitimate, so our name isn't really uh, Griffith, but my great-grandmother married <coughs> a Griffith and, went, and had the baby, and that's uh, how the name Griffith came about. Uh, on my on my dad's side. On my mom's side, we don't know. My mom lost touch uh, with her family. She ran away when she was uh, 13. Mm-hmm. Got caught, brought back, and then ran again away again when she was 15. And if you know what goes on in the world today, and you listen kind of to the way she told the story, it wasn't a good story for her. So um, she, she, my dad married her and moved her out to rural Pennsylvania. And we grew up on my grandfather's dairy farm. And when my grandfather decided to sell the uh, the dairy farm, my dad built a house up on the hill and my grandfather built a house right next to him. And then we sold the farm to Amish and I grew up in the middle of Amish country. Um, and I worked at the, the farm down the hill and milking cows. And I've been telling somebody I've had a full time paying job since I was 12. So
0: <laughs> I would imagine. Wait. So did you always think I'm just going to be the next farmer in the generation?
1: I didn't, not farming. I didn't really like that. After my grandfather sold the farm, my dad became a contractor and he wanted me to be a contractor with him. I didn't particularly like that either. Uh, And I didn't know what I wanted to do, to be honest. I was going to go into the military like both my brothers did. And um, kind of at the last minute, um, some of my teachers started talking to me about going to college and I had never thought I was going to go to college. In fact, I took the SATs. I didn't even know what I was taking them for. So... uh, (laughs) we they uh my dad actually took me to a state senator and i remember my dad saying listen we don't have much but the boy's smart he should get a chance Uh and um i ended up getting a senatorial scholarship uh back then and that's what got me off on my that was enough to pay for tuition for my first year and then i got a, a job uh at school um I was uh, running a gas, well, I started out pumping gas, and I, all of a sudden, a year later, I was running the gas station. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, how, a- how does
0: that happen? You you can't just uh, gloss over that one.
1: Last man standing. Uh, <laughs> you know, one that would still be there, and, you know, I, I needed the money. So, you know, anybody's shifts, I would cover the shifts. And you mentioned earlier about uh, being outside reporting in the, in the freezing cold. You know, I was pumping gas at Penn State during the gas crisis. And, um it was it was cold and people were not very pleasant uh, about the long lines of guests, but are uh, waiting for guests. But, you know, you, you, I just became the manager because I was there. I was interested in it's like, oh, it's 50 cents more an hour. Absolutely. I'll do it.
0: You know, I want to point out what you just said about people being unhappy and cold. And yet you saw an opportunity. What was it about that experience that showed you? Wait a minute. When nobody else wants to do something, you be the one to step up because that could change the
1: course of an entire life. Yeah, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunities out there. It's just, do you want to go do the work or not? You know, so I remember on the Merv Griffin show years, years ago, this was in the 60s. Talk I show, talk show. Yeah. <laughs> and um, somebody said success is just a matter of wanting to be successful. And it kind of always stuck with me. It was on a show where Merv had on several self-made millionaires. And and they talked about, you know, it's really just wanting it enough. Because, you know, I often tell my kids, um, you know, I made sacrifices in order to, for them to have the life that they have. I said, you know, we could have had a different life. And, you know, I would have been maybe around a bit more and I would have been, you know, more accessible or, you know, less busy or whatever that might mean. But, um, you know, you want, I, I wanted them to have a, a better life than me. And it was similar with my dad. You know, my dad made it through eighth grade and my mom made it through 11th and then they both had to go to work Well, my mom ran away. So, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, they, they had to sacrifice, uh, in order to get to where they got. I mean, you know, my dad was considered successful um, in our hometown. It was a very small town. There weren't a lot of opportunities there. And, uh, you know, he made a living. And dad always said, you know, have a job. You know, you want to have a job. You don't want to not have a job. And I even remember when the first, I got a big bonus once uh, in the early 80s, I made $10,000. And my dad said, you know what, I'd do that. You know what I'd do with that, don't you? And I said, no, what? And he goes, I'd put that in the mattress. And dad was not using mattress as a metaphor for a bank for a rainy day. Mm. Dad meant cut a hole in the mattress and stick the cash in there in case you're going to need it. Um, Well, people from the Depression era
0: did that. That's that's how they
1: behaved. Sure. My father never had a bank account. He dealt in cash. That was it. Wow.
0: Well, so you're in college, Penn State, correct? Yep. You're in college. How did you end up going toward retail? Because it, it's not just Land's End. That's where you are now. That's the heights that you have reached. But you've been at The Gap. You've been at Toomey. You've been at so many other places that we all know of, uh, but they're all retail. So talk about uh, what grabbed your attention regarding that.
1: Two things. Um, working in Pennsylvania in the wintertime uh, construction or even milking and cows, uh, it's cold in the winter. And as I got uh, in through high school and my my junior year, um, I wanted to find something to do that wasn't quite so cold. <laughs> well, that's a
0: driver. Uh, Success is one driver and get me away from the freezing cold is another.
1: And um, there was a little department store in my hometown called the J.D. Department Store. And they needed somebody to work in the men's department. So, you know, I asked them if I could and they said, Yeah. So I got a job selling men's clothing at, I think I was 15. I might've been 16, but I think it was 15. And um, I would work after schools and on Saturdays uh, there. And I kind of got into it and it was fun. And it took me a while to decide to actually do that because I started college as a chemical engineer major and working a full-time job plus going to college in chemical engineering. It was just a bit too much for me. So Mm -hmm. I switched to marketing. It was a lot easier. And um, and figured I'd go into the world of retail. Plus, you know, you looked at Vogue magazines and that just looked like such an exciting life. Like, what would that be like to live in New York City and see all these models and all of the Mm. the, the, the glamour and glitz? And and it seemed really cool. It's not that just by the way. That's that's what you think it is. is But that's what you think it is.
0: Well, so. What was your first major job after college that really got your juices flowing where you thought, this is how I really want to pursue the rest of my life?
1: Um, I was on the executive training program at Lord & Taylor back in the day. This was 1979. Um, if you were going into the world of retail, you wanted to get into a department store training program. The best ones were AS, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, and Lord & Taylor. Uh, and I miraculously, uh, made it there. I had two job offers, one to move to Florida and work as a department manager for JCPenney, which paid me more money, or one to go to New York city for a whopping $11,000 per year mm. and, um, work in the executive training program. And, you know, you, you work your way up to a buyer. So that takes about three to five years. It took me four. And um, then after you're a buyer, then you either go into the world of merchandising or the world of operations. And I ended up going into the world of operations, which was running stores. And my specialty, since my dad was a contractor became remodeling department stores while keeping them open and running.
0: Ah, <laughs> the so, scaffolding, all that. Yeah,
1: so I've remodeled the Boston Lord & Taylor. I remodeled the Ridgewood New- North Lord and & Taylor. And then I remodeled the Westchester Lord and & Taylor. And it was... I, I kind of had a niche. I really liked it. It was a lot of fun. It was, you know, trying to run a business at the sa- and keep customers safe and clean and have a good experience at the same time as you're ripping half the store apart and trying to fix it.
0: Oh, it's like so putting it was, an airplane up in the sky and you're riveting onto the wings.
1: A little bit, a little bit. And it was, uh, you know, a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. And it's a people business. I mean, in uh, and, and the world of retail, it's all about the people that you work with. And they're, it's very people intensive uh, to make Just make anything, but, you know, making clothing, getting pants that fit, things like that. You've got a lot of folks that are involved in this. And you have a lot of uh, people facing the consumer. I mean, maybe not so much today because of the proliferation of the Internet, but uh, there's lots of people working on the Internet, too. (laughs) So it's it's very people-oriented. And if you like people and you like working with them and you like problems and puzzles and trying to solve things, uh, it was fun. So I stuck with it.
0: This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. I want to just point out something that you said. You took the lesser paying job that looked like possibly a better opportunity. How much does taking risks where you can't see around the corner, you don't know how deep or shallow the water is, how much does jumping in um, pay off? Because that is the issue. I mean, when I was told, listen, you've got one job offer out of Boston and it's it's to do some quirky business network thing. I mean, I never owned a stock in my life. My dad was a surgeon. My mom was a Shakespearean-trained theater actress. I, I didn't know anything about the Dow Jones industrials or the stock market. My dad said, glory goes to those who take chances in life. Um, but if you yeah. go for only the money, that's not necessarily taking the right chance.
1: No, God favors the bold. Yes, so, um, it was not a popular decision. Um, like my, my parents, I think were are not particularly <laughs> excited. I remember my dad driving me up with all my furniture in the back of a pickup truck and we pulled out right next to the Metropolitan Museum of Art on fifth Avenue. I remember my father sticking his head out. And so he swore when he said this, but he pretty much said, you can keep this place. <laughs> my father hated cities. And, um, you know, I was like, "Geez, Dad, this is like the nicest place in New York City." So it was, you know, interesting in, in taking that. But you know, I really just got some advice, and I had a, a mentor from um, from home, Mrs. Turner, who grew up on the main line of Philadelphia. And I said to her, "So I had these two job offers: one at J.C. Penney, one at Lord and Taylor. Uh, J.C. Penney's in Florida, Lord and Taylor's in New York." And she said, "Are you seriously asking me that question?" She said, "It's retail. There is only New York." I'm like, oh, okay.
0: We love Mrs. Turner. We love love her. her.
1: So I had, you know, one navy blazer, two white shirts, two pair of khaki pants, socks, underwear, and a pair of penny loafers. And that's how I started my career at Lord & Taylor, uh, alternating them because that's what I could afford. I lived in a... Railway flat, which had a bathtub in the kitchen and a shared (laughs) toilet down the hall for two hundred and thirty five dollars per month. Uh, But I was in New York, so I was on my way.
0: Well, it's not comfortable. And that's what we want our listeners to know about the climb and success. And they know it. That's why they keep coming. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people are listening to these stories on Everyone Talks to Liz because You know, there's always this hermetically, perfectly sealed story that's packaged of how I made it to the top. And nobody takes the time to really delve down and point out the dark times, the the lonely nights, the scary times where you're looking at your bank account. and There's not much left, but you're still
1: reaching for a dream. You experienced that. I had nothing left when I was running the department store at Lord & Taylor. Um, as, a, as a department manager, this must have been 80, 81. Mm-hmm. We would write a check to ourselves and deposit the check so the bank would think that you had money. <laughs> so you could take money out and get lunch. So I was going <laughs> to anyway, say,
0: how did you eat?
1: It wasn't easy. Um, you know, my first couple of years, I was very skinny because <laughs> – it's like rice and salad. That's what you can afford. We used to go to happy hour because lots of bars had like chicken wings and stuff at happy right. Hour. So that would that would uh, that help But you know, there wasn't you know, it wasn't like mom and dad. Hey, send me money because yeah. well, dad couldn't. We didn't have a bank account. But <laughs> that just wasn't in the cards. So you're out there on your own, and, and it's all up to you. But you know, even even years later, I remember taking the job at, to me because I wanted to run my own company. And it was right at 08, 09 when, you know, everybody thought the banking system was going to collapse. Well, and I remember Friday afternoons us deciding, like, who's getting paid this week uh, because it t- cash was tight. And now it ended up working out. But I can tell you, in March of two thousand and nine, it was not feeling good
0: well, that was for those of you who don't know, the the market completely collapsing to the lows of the entire era of the financial crisis and collapse and very dark times i talked to people who were starting up companies at that point and they said they had to go in and tell people i understand if you want to leave but i i hope you'll stay but i can't pay you your paycheck this week I, it's, there's no money and that one of those companies ended up being pandora music so i mean you know if you can make it through the tough times you can make it through anything right
1: I, you know, even with what's been going on the last two and a half years with COVID and then the supply chain crisis now with the major inflation. Sure. You know, I, at 08, 09, we said if we can make it through this, we can
0: make it through anything. Mm, absolutely. You know, I want to talk a little bit about fashion and where you are right now, because. I mean, the fashion industry was vastly altered by the COVID lockdowns. Land's End is best known for cozy comfort. I mean, I feel like the predictions about COVID being the death of high fashion or at least putting it into an ER are are actually kind of true because I can admit something. I mean, ever since COVID, three-quarters of the time people see me on TV, I'm all professional, waist up, blazer, silk blouse, understated jewelry. On the bottom where you can't see, I'm wearing yoga pants how has the landscape of clothing really changed by the pandemic?
1: People's lifestyles have, have changed. And, they you know, listen, shopping, shopping habits have changed, you know, t- two major times in the last two years. When everybody went into lockdown, people started to have to, have to buy online. So what you had was your Gen Xers and your baby boomers that had not been online shoppers that were being now forced into being an online shopper. And then you had your millennials and Gen Y, which, you know, they were shopping online already. And they were like, well, now we'll just buy everything online. So that was a big switch. And then as soon as people could go out of the house and go back into stores, they started not to the levels of 2019, but they started going back to stores as well. But then you've seen a big shift from Uh, yoga pants and sweatpants to people buying, you know, khakis and dress shirts Mm -hmm. because they're going back to the office sometimes, you know. But with stretch,
0: with a little stretch, right?
1: (laughs) Everybody wants more comfort. I mean, comfort is the word. Everybody wants to be comfortable no matter where they are, if it's Mm -hmm. sitting at home, if it's in the office. And I think, quite honestly, historically, so 10 or 20 years, you'll look back on this and you'll say, wow, this was a major change in how people worked and lived. Tell me about
0: Land's End today. How's business? Uh, how's your online demand going? Uh, will people go back to brick and mortar, or are they so comfortable now in sitting with their laptop on their stomach with a bag of chips and saying, okay, I'm gonna buy that?
1: Well, one of the one of the pillars of our growth strategy is we wanna be a unit channel player. What that means is you wanna be where your customer shops and customers have habits. They, they shop in certain ways and you can clearly see via e-commerce how customers shop. We want to make it so that if they want to be in a store or if they want to be online or if they want to be on somebody else's uh, uh, web website, uh, we want to be there and relevant for them with the same type of experience. And that's what, you know, customers are very powerful today. Customers, Are all about, you know, where am I spending my dollars and am I getting the right messaging? And, you know, it's a continually changing landscape out there. If you think uh, search, for example, if you go online and you say, I want to search for a blue button down dress shirt, you know, people are always vying, our companies are vying for those dollars for that person who wants that blue button down dress shirt. And the algorithms that that Google will set up uh, are ever changing. So you're always running to catch up with what's the newest and most interesting, coolest trend um and i think that what you'll find is and i've I, my advice to customers is always spend a lot of money on basics don't spend too much money on fashion because fashion changes a lot and basics will last forever so that's your best that's your best bet in how you're buying clothing uh and you know my sense is over the course of time people will continue to shop online and in store and it's whatever is going to be convenient for them mm-hmm. the the change in the in the retail landscape has been pretty vast though you know and you'll see cut companies now you'll see companies again going through holiday this year some of them will go bankrupt they're not going to be able to make it because they're poorly capitalized or they haven't kept up with consumer demand and you'll see other companies that will be new and they'll come in and they'll take up space you'll see empty store spaces, and you've seen it in New York, a lot of empty store spaces, but then you'll see new companies coming in and taking a risk and getting a better deal from the landlord. So it's going to be an ever-changing, and I think it's going to continue for the next couple of years, ever-changing landscape. But as things start to get back to normal, it's not going to be the normal that you knew in 2018 and 2019. It's going to be a different normal.
0: Right, right. Well, things evolve, things change, and this country and this world has been through uh, possibly one of the biggest earthquakes of several generations. Jerome, as we finish up, I, I guess as I'm hearing your story, I would really love to know. And it's hard to step ask, you know, to ask you to step outside yourself and look back at you. But what is the most important characteristic you feel you had? At the most difficult of times, whether it was when you were working and trying to pay for your tuition or dealing with crisis after crisis, etc., what characteristic do you think served you best to help you get where you are today?
1: I've always felt I have my priorities straight. I have three priorities and that's it. Number one, my wife. Number two, my kids. Number three, my job. So... I try to always live by that, you know, your family's who's going to be there for you always. But, you know, past your family, you know, you have a responsibility to people. And, you know, our company today, you know, will be 60 years old next year, we employ about 5500 people, we're a big employer in the state of Wisconsin. And, you know, as the company goes, as the company's revenues and profitability goes, so goes the area in which we operate. Uh, so you've got a big responsibility. And when you say, you know, my job, it's my job. Those are those are people that are my constituents, all of our employees, all of our customers in the area. So it's it's our responsibility to make sure that they have a livelihood. So, you know, you, for me, it's just it's keeping things in perspective and keeping your priorities straight. And I've always gone back to that.
0: And I'd be remiss if I didn't finish this by telling people something that they may not know about Land's End. Land's End started 58 years ago as a supplier of yachting equipment and sailing fabric. I love this story, right right on the shores of Lake Michigan. And to have morphed into this is, is such an inspirational story. And there is a story about why the apostrophe is after yeah. the S and not the in between the D and the S. It's supposed to be between the D and the S, right?
1: Yes. Gary Comer is the founder of the company, uh, started his first catalog, and they sent it off to the printers. And when it came back, the uh, apostrophe was in the wrong spot, but they couldn't afford to change it. So they just left it. And that's what the logo began.
0: <laughs> okay. Gary, you guys I'm know something right now there. about land's end and the apostrophe yes goes at the end. And there's that reason. Jerome, what a terrific story. Thank you for sharing it with us.
1: Thanks for the time. with us appreciate it.
0: Jerome Griffith of Land's End. And and you guys, okay, so Fox Business, we're coming up on our 15th anniversary. And when we started 15 years ago, we were kind of a mess. We were that airplane that was still being built while we were in the air uh, and the financial crisis hit minutes after we launched in October of 2007. So listen, we've got a great story to tell every day, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. It's the Clayman Countdown. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you know I love you guys. We'll see you next time.